This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Go to thedispatch.com to uh, achieve the next level of enlightenment and get the modern secular equivalent of Gunga Galunga. Um, thanks to everybody for sticking with us during all the uh, travails and whatnot, and we're all very excited to have you. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Donors Trust. More about them in a minute or two, or... 20. Um, so today we have, uh, my friend, my colleague, uh, one of the most dyspeptic people I know, uh, the director of economic studies at the American Enterprise Institute and the author of an eminently readable, which is very rare, I can tell you, readable, and I'm, I'm holding it up like you people can see it, uh, uh, sort of, uh, it's a book, but it's, 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 it's the kind of thing you could read on a flight. It's, it's light. It's, it's the right length. It's the right length. It's the fresca of economic analyses. <laughs> and it is the American dream is not dead, but populism could kill it. Michael Strain, delighted to have you here. Thank you for having me back. Um, so you were like one of my, uh, econ guys. Like when I don't understand something, I ask you these kinds of things and you were saying something. We typically make it up. Uh, well, yeah, well, that's the thing. So, I mean, you were, you are saying something interesting before we started recording and I, I wanted to ask about this. Um, you say you hated poor people and, um, you want to see them suffer because they deserve it. Is that, am I quoting you accurately? I mean, that's, that's basically the gist of it, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and, and they deserve what they're getting mm-hmm. and, and, and who are we to interfere with that? In fact, they should have it worse than they currently do. Why do we think we should come in and mess with the natural order of things? Yeah. All right. Okay. So you were not in fact saying that. Um, but you have written this book, which has what I like many charts and tables and things I can understand because pictures are easier. Um, In many ways, it's like, it is the anti-Thomas Piketty book. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Which I had to read that thing, that, that, what was it, the Capitol thing, and I wrote like a 10,000 word review. I remember that. Yeah, that was long I read the draft. (laughs) Yeah, it was difficult. Um, (laughs) And uh, this is not that. But uh, why do you think, think it was necessary to, to write the book? Why is the American dream not dead? What is the American dream? Go. Well, I thought I thought it was necessary because there seems to be this kind of bipartisan consensus that the American dream is dead, uh, and that consensus um, has is largely fueled by populism. Oh. Uh, and it's remarkable when you when you look at the at the breadth of agreement on this topic. I I have a very short chapter in the book where I just go through and provide some examples. You know, Donald Trump says the American dream is dead. Bernie Sanders says the American dream has become a nightmare for many. Marco Rubio used to tell this story 
about his family's origins and his father was a bartender and, and look, now he's a U.S. senator. I've heard it like, uh, 45 times. 45 times, yeah. right? And back in 2016, the moral of the story, according to Rubio, was, isn't America great? Today, he tells exactly the same story, but his conclusion is that that path is closed mm-hmm. and, 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 and that the American dream is in, is in great despair. Tucker Carlson refers to the dark age we are living through and says the American dream is dying. Joe Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winning economist uh, and former Clinton administration official, uh, says that the American economy is failing its citizens. Ray Dalio, the billionaire investor, says the American dream is uh, is dying. So this is this is you know widespread presidential candidates from both parties, business leaders, public intellectuals, economists, uh, 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 commentators, and opinion leaders, um, and. I just think it's it's just at odds with the facts, mm-hmm. uh, you know. And if if the if the consensus were if the consensus around this were weaker or more nuanced, I wouldn't have felt compelled to write the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but what worries me is that uh, the the prevalence with which this message is out there, um, uh, and 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 the degree to which everybody seems to be saying this, I think can have a real impact on actual people. Um, precisely because this narrative is wrong, mm-hmm. precisely because it is the case that hard work pays off, that aspirations can be fulfilled, that risk-taking can be rewarded, uh, if people hear that none of those things are true, it can hurt their economic outcomes. So I wanted to just uh, correct the record um, and uh, you know try and inflect the debate uh, in a more accurate direction, and that's, uh, that's why I wrote this. Yeah, no, it's funny. Um... People can get in trouble if they analogize the American people to children, and I'm not doing that. But the point you're making is really obvious to every parent about raising kids. Mm-hmm. If you tell kids, if you if you raise your kids from an early age and tell them, there's no point in trying. <laughs> You'll <laughs> yeah. never get ahead. The game is rigged. The game is rigged. You should just grab what you can, and uh, you know, and and not worry about being a good person or not worry about being a hard worker, any of these kinds of things. Take the easy path because you'll never get ahead. People would understand that that kind of message can have a deleterious impact on someone's life path, right? Absolutely. The same principle applies even when you send that message to grownups. Yeah, that's it, right. You know, that's and right. it's weird because I find it, this is one of my, and we, we'll get to the, you know, we've promised our listeners there'll be very little to no math on this podcast. <laughs> but... um Sort of the stuff that you're talking about sort of jibes. There's also the sort of the American Compass, uh, Orrin Cass project. About, yeah. There's uh, some of the, uh, you mentioned Rubio, but there's also the first things thing. Um, it seems that, remember that line from uh, Pulp Fiction where it's kind of made up from the Bible where Samuel L. Jackson says that the path of the righteous men is beset on all yeah. sides, right? But the sins of the wicked and blah, 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 blah. Uh, I feel like, I'm being constantly subjected to straw men mm-hmm. everywhere, right? Unfettered capitalism rules yeah. in America. Libertarians have been running Washington. Mm-hmm. The American dream is dead. And it's like everybody needs to frame the debate in such stark terms because they can't win it on the merits with the reality that we're actually dealing with. Yeah, that's right. And um, and to, to your first point about, about messages mattering, I really think they do. 
they certainly matter for parents. Um, but there's there's actually some good evidence that they that they matter in a broader context. I mean, if you look at the success of the anti-smoking campaign, right? You know, people people respond to messages, people listen to public messages, um, and uh, you know, certainly that's um, I think true when those messages are coming from people with megaphones as loud as presidential candidates, the president of the United States, uh, you know, prominent commentators, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, in terms of the straw man, I mean, I, I, I think that's right too. And one of the things that I try to do in the book is accurately characterize the state of the country. Uh, and I have a chapter in there where I talk about the problems we face. And there's no question we face serious problems. Absolutely. Um, social problems, economic problems. There are, there are real challenges uh, facing the country. Um, and I try in the book not to shy away from those. But the point that I that I make, which I think is right, uh, which is why I tried to make it, is... It'd be fun if you told me that. It would be. <laughs> yeah. Everything, everything is a lie. <laughs> um, but the, the, the point I try to make is that we are, I think, confusing pockets of very serious and real problems for the typical common experience mm-hmm. that a person can face. You know, you would think that every town in America was uh, uh, a hollowed out former factory town. You would think that half the people in the country were opioid addicts. You would think that uh, that you know three quarters of people in the country hadn't seen a wage increase in, in, in decades, if you listen to the, to the public debate. And, uh, you know, I, I think you're... Your hypothesis is interesting that maybe that's a rhetorical tactic in order to get attention. I don't know. Um, uh, but whatever the kind of underlying motivation is, I think it's I think it's a I think it's both wrong and and you know we should be in the business of uh, saying what's true. Uh, and I and again, I think it's just I think it's just a very damaging message to put out there. Yeah, I mean, uh, the elevators here at AEI often have these rotating quotes from AI scholars, and one of them is from. Uh, one of my heroes, Irving Kristol, and it's about how I, I will butter it. It's in my book, but um, um, ideas um, still matter the most because ideas are how we shape our perception of reality, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same point about messaging. Um, anyway, we will get back to um, the people who don't want us to have nice things and the, the, the sort of high egghead punditry in a little bit. But let's let's back up. Um, um, what is the American dream and, um, how's it doing? So the American dream is a kind of complicated and amorphous concept that changes over time and that means different things to different people. Um, you know, kind of common elements of the American dream include a good family life, a comfortable retirement. Uh, I, <laughs> in the book, I have this anecdote. The New York Times made um, an assertion that a well manicured lawn has long been central to the to the American dream. I have no I have no lawn, so uh-huh. I, I must I must not be living it. Um, but the you know the point is that it's a it's kind of a broad and vague concept. I think central to anyone's definition of the American dream, really at any point since this concept came about, is is an economic component. The idea that hard work will pay off, the idea that you can better your economic outcomes, uh, and uh, uh, the idea that your kids can grow up and do better than you. 
um, you know, a chicken in every pot, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Uh, and that's the part of the American dream that I focus on, both because I think it really is very central to the American dream and because that's where the public narrative, I think, has kind of veered off the off the rails. It's also just the part that's measurable in a way yeah. that yeah. other ones aren't. Yeah, right? yeah it's easier. In, in a sense, it's easier to measure. Um, so... Um, how is the American worker doing? Just, all right, this is the math portion. People, listeners out there who want to fast forward, I understand, but we should just we should check this box. Only fast forward if you're going to buy the book immediately. That's right. Um, yeah, or or we hit pause, run to the store, buy the book, and then you could look at the charts, and you don't have to hear the numbers from Strain. But available on Amazon, you can download it to your Kindle instantaneously. Um, it's an amazing age we live in. So um, the case is made that wages have stagnated. No one's done. That, that people were better off 40 years ago, 50 years ago. The 1950s and the early 1960s looms large in a lot of people's imaginations. We'll yeah. get to that in a second. Um, but just on the macro side, just paint us a picture of, of what's really happened with workers. So you hear, you hear often wages and incomes have been stagnant for decades. Uh, Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri, uh, Republican senator from Missouri and the kind of rising conservative populist star, gave the commencement address at the King's College and argued that the vast majority of workers haven't seen a pay increase for 30 years. This is a very common argument. Um, What I do in the book is I uh, look at a group of workers who you can think of as as workers, not as managers. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the manufacturing industry, these are production workers, not managers. In the construction industry, these are construction workers, not not foreman in uh, in the services industry. These are non-supervisory workers, workers who aren't supervisors in, in retail stores and things of that nature. At AI, it would be research assistants, not managers of economics departments. It would be like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Although they're anyway. <laughs> and so that group constitutes about eighty percent of all workers. About four in five workers are in that group. And and I'm you know kicking out the managers to focus on on typical workers on 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 what the typical experiences. And if you look at that group, over the last 30 years, since 1990, their wages have gone up by about a third. That is after adjusting for inflation. That's after accounting for the fact that healthcare, education, you know, clothing, whatever, has become more expensive. So their their purchasing power increase is about is about one third. Their inflation adjusted wages have gone up by about a third. That is that is not stagnant. Mm. Um, that is a solid increase uh, in wages for typical workers. Um, yes, it's less than uh, how much wages have gone up for the top one percent, for sure. Um, but 99% of us aren't in the top 1%. And I think it's important to focus on, again, on the, on, on the experience of, 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 of typical people. Um, you know, it's not, it's not a pace of increase we should be satisfied with. We shouldn't say, you know, okay, well, you know, mission accomplished. We need better public policy to help uh, workers command even higher wages with faster growth. And I have a chapter in the book where I, where I uh, talk about policy. Um, though most of the book is, is really about kind of diagnosing uh, economic and social life. Um, but there, there is a chapter in there about policy. Um, but look, you know, it's just, it's, just, it's just not accurate, in my view, to characterize a one-third increase mm-hmm. in uh, inflation-adjusted wages as stagnant. So let me ask you, though, I mean, it's gone up one-third for those workers, but the workers in 1990 or 95 or 2000 
may not still have those jobs, right? I mean, some of those people have mm-hmm. grown out or you know or fallen off. Yeah. But I mean, like this is one of the problems I have with a lot of the sort of economics shorthand is we talk about categories of people without acknowledging enough that the actual members of those cohorts may have, you know, advanced out of those cohorts, right? Yeah. I mean, so we're talking about the average construction worker. Well, maybe the average construction worker, the specific, maybe Joe Blow from 1990 was a construction worker for five years and then was a construction foreman, right? And then did something else. I mean, that's part of the American dream is that we are in these various stations in our lives for a time, and then we move out of them, yeah. hopefully upward, right? Yeah. No, that's exactly right. And and uh, later on in the book, when I when I get to an analysis of whether or not you'll do your children will do better than you, I follow people. Mm-hmm. So I do I do exactly what you're not in a stalker kind of way. not in a stalker way, but oh. in the in the data. You know, I uh-huh. look at them. Um, not like uh, looking through their bedroom. I don't know who they are. Uh-huh. You know, you can't. You don't have addresses or anything like okay. that. That would be weird and creepy. You don't. You don't uh, call them and tell them you look great in that nighty. <laughs> no, I mean like... uh, maybe I do. <laughs> I'm not certainly not going to admit to that on this podcast. Fair enough. Fair um, enough. Uh, uh, but what I do is, you know, I do I I do a, a, a kind of a exercise where I I take a bunch of people who are currently in their 40s um, and I say, okay, of this group of people who are in their 40s, how many of them have a higher household income than their parents had when their parents were in their 40s? Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is actually tracking the people like you're talking about mm-hmm. and, not, and not just doing the snapshot. I'm trying to set you uh, up here, man. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's a, it was a good setup. Mm-hmm. Um, and about three quarters of people, about seventy, about seventy-three percent of people who are in their forties today have a higher household income than their parents had when their parents were in their forties. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is considerable upward mobility. Mm-hmm. If you look at people who were in their forties today who were raised in the bottom twenty percent, eighty-six percent of those people have a higher household income today than their parents had when their parents were in the same age. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's that's a lot of upward mobility. I think I think it's just uh, inaccurate to say that that America is no longer an upwardly mobile society. Um, so one of the things I'm kind of fascinated by, and I I honestly can't remember if I've talked about this on a podcast before, or if I've just done it on my own with other people, but um, I've been to Europe a bunch lately because my daughter's going to school in Spain and been out of the- And you want the coronavirus. And I want the coronavirus badly. Um, it's easier uh, to get there. Um, well, I mean, I, I already went on that food lovers tour of Wuhan, which was awesome. Uh, <laughs> Spent a little time eating off the floor of the wet markets. The bat gumbo is fantastic. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I, I, I've been to out of the way places in Europe, not, you know, just the, the main shopping districts, which have the same stores that we've got on fifth Avenue yeah. or wherever. Um, and it becomes kind of clear pretty quickly that like, this country is just a lot richer than most of Europe. A lot richer. And you hear this commentary. I mean, I always remember this column by uh, this former economist, you might know, Paul Krugman, um, (laughs) who wrote this thing about how Europe, this is back in his days of writing how we were never going to get above 2% growth again, and that's Mm -hmm. fine, and that Europe's doing fine. He says, you know, he wrote this piece about how he's walking around Paris, looking around, and he's like, you know, this is this is a rich country. This place is doing fine, and you know he leaves out that the the places that Paul Krugman is walking around Paris 
Um, it's sort of like that, my favorite line from Richard Nixon when he was asked if there was overpopulation, if the world was overpopulated. He says, it's obvious that the world is overpopulated. I mean, everywhere I go, I see huge crowds, right? Where Paul Krugman is walking around and the, you know, the <laughs> seventh arrondissement um, might look really good, right? But not the suburbs of Paris. Anyway, um, you can go through almost any European city and you'll still see in prosperous neighborhoods, people with clotheslines out drying their clothes on a clothesline. I mean, you, you can see that in America, but you have to drive into, you know, more rural places to see that because most people have access to washer dryers. I'm not saying that everybody does, but I'm sure the data holds pretty well about the prevalence of them in America vis-a-vis Europe. And just like little signs like that, that the, the upward mobility, the lack of churn, you've got this middle-class unionized um, workforce that holds on to their entitlements for dear life and rejects comp- labor competition and all of the rest. But you have this sense from listening to people like Bernie Sanders and even sometimes Donald Trump, but also a lot of pundits, that somehow we're falling behind Europe and that Europe is this richer, more advanced civilization. It's just it's just not true. Yeah, it's just not true. It's just not true. Um, and you also have a similar... So it's, it's interesting to me because people simultaneously look at like Western Europe or even China as like they're beating us. China's beating us in the aggregate, but the average Chinese person is way poorer sure. than the average American person. But they also look to the 1950s as if we were somehow richer back then, right? Yeah. And you spent some time on this. What is what is wrong with like this this sort of 1950s, early 1960s golden ageism that we hear so much about? Well, I, I guess the, the the first thing that comes to mind is that it really wasn't a golden age if you were a woman, and it wasn't a golden age if you were a non-white man. Right. Um, and, you know, part of what I find so troubling about this kind of conservative nationalist, conservative populist, uh, uh, you know, deep nostalgia for the 1950s is that it just completely ignores those problems. Yeah. You know, there were still segregated lunch counters. You know, women weren't working, uh, and they weren't working because they because they couldn't. Right. Uh, or they were in specific tracks of kind of guys. Yeah, they weren't working anywhere near like what they what they telephone what they, operators, secretaries. Yeah, yeah and exactly. Yeah. So you know, it was actually a pretty bad period for a whole lot of people. Um, and today, white men are not the majority of people in this country, and and, and so this idea that you know we'd all be better if we just went back to the fifties is is just absurd. Um, on its face, uh, you know, there's I think I think for white men, the 50s were, uh, you know, a, a, a good period. Mm-hmm. But I don't even statistically th- statistically. But yeah. but but even still, it's just, you know, like who what what white guy who's 45 years old or 50 years old would actually like want to hop in a time machine and go back to the year 1960. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I have a, I have a, a, a short chapter in the book where I talk about, you know, just some basic quality of life measures, you know, you know, death rates from heart disease, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, other measures of health, you know, the safety of travel, um, the availability of medicines, the prevalence of, of air conditioning and other comforts, uh, you know, nobody. I mean, life was not better in the in, right. in, in the fifties. It just it just wasn't. Well, okay. So um, to push back on that a little bit, um, since you're one, also one of my um, 
what do they call them? Mackerel snappers? Uh, Ultramontane Catholics? Uh, um, you're, you're loyal to the Pope in the Rome. Word, I think the word is... <laughs> <laughs> um, the Pope in Rome. <laughs> um, uh, we're just trying to... Every now and then, you know, people want to play um, anti-Catholic bigotry bingo on this podcast. Sure, sure. And so I'm trying to yeah, get, yeah. fill out all their cards. No, no that's good. <laughs> as you know, I'm actually... The Antichrist. Yeah. Uh, um, but... Uh, the response you would get from some flavors of the nationalist crowd is sure what you were saying is true, but you also had greater family cohesion. Mm-hmm. You also had uh, better church attendance. Mm-hmm. You had more civic patriotism in terms of like commitment to this country where we weren't running it down. Um, I have my responses to all that, but, but there is, I mean, so Brink Lindsay, uh, back when he was at Cato, he wrote a, uh, really interesting he had a really good interesting observation which was that um for the left the left want you know when it comes to the 1950s the left wants to work there and the right wants to live there Mm -hmm. um and a lot of the rights argument which what's interesting today is that it used to be the stuff i just brought up right the cultural cohesion Mm -hmm. stuff that conservatives yearn for What's interesting to me is that in the last five years, we've seen this convergence where the right also wants to work there. The, mm-hmm. the economics of the 1950s are the imagined economics of the 1950s are more attractive to them, too, because we've now had this weird flip where a lot of right wingers have a materialistic understanding of the economy and they think the economy drives the culture. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's your response to sort of the the argument that you know, man does not live by bread alone and that the, these other things were important and valuable and it's one reason to look back on the 1950s longingly. Um, I mean, again, I think that, I think that, you know, as a, as a society, the 1950s had some pretty horrible aspects to it. Uh, uh, you know, race relations, mm. one obvious example. Um, and so, you know, even even socially and culturally, I think we shouldn't be, you know, too too nostalgic for the fifties. Um, but things like uh, family cohesion, I think, are extremely important, and we shouldn't downplay that. We shouldn't dismiss that. Um, uh, and and there's no question, but that that has been on a on a downward trend. Um, so, you know, there. I, I think that the takeaway for me is that there is no kind of golden age. Mm-hmm. You know, every every age has its problems. Every age has its challenges. Uh, and and what we need to be doing is directing our energy to addressing the challenges of the of the world as we find it, uh, and and this this nostalgia seems to me to be, you know, just very unhelpful and, mm-hmm. and kind of a distraction. But so, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? I mean, talk about we were began by talking about messages and how ideas govern things. Is it still the case, like you used to hear often? And I say it often myself that the days of having a strong back and a good work ethic are no longer a guarantee for a middle class life, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's probably true. If you disagree, you should tell me. Um, but the good work ethic part strikes me as still the best guarantee for a middle class life, right? If you sort of subscribe to the bourgeois values of delayed gratification of mm-hmm of hard work, honesty, thrift, all of these kinds of things. I think the guys at Brookings call it the success sequence, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. You can still achieve the American dream, yes or no? Yes, you can. Um, and, you know, that's that's just a 
a fact, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you are a, a man who dropped out of high school and you're in your you know 30s or 40s, you're going to have a hard time in the labor market. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but even for that group, you know, you can still get a job, work hard, earn a paycheck. Um, uh, uh, and for and for other groups in 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 the labor market, you know, things are things are much easier. Uh, you know, the again the you know the 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 nostalgia for this kind of male breadwinner, mm. stay-at-home uh, wife type arrangement that you that you see on the right right now is just at odds with the evidence. Um, you know, you don't need to be a dual earner couple in order to lead a middle class life. Mm. You just don't. You know, I, I, I there's there's been this. You might in some places, though, right? You might you might in some places, but but even even still, I mean, you know, so here I'm just relying on anecdotes. I mean, you and I know lots of people who are single earner mm-hmm. couples, and Washington's a very expensive place yeah. to live. Um, so, you know, it's it's certainly uh, easier in Washington to have a middle class life if if both husband and wife, mom and dad are working than, than it is in, you know, Kansas City where I grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can do it. You can do it in Washington, too. Uh, you know, and, and and the right is spending all of this energy right now asserting that you can't be a male breadwinner, that you have to have mm-hmm. uh, two income couples, that that's destroying the family. You know, if you just if you just look at the if you just look at the 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 data on this, um, if you look at uh, married men who have kids under the age of 18, you know, dependent kids, uh, and who earn between fifty dollars and $100,000 a year. About a quarter, about 25% of those men have a stay-at-home wife. Mm-hmm. It is common for people in the middle class to have uh, one one person who goes and works, the husband, and, and one person who stays at home with the kids, the wife. Um, the people who don't arrange their life that way are making a choice about what's best for their family, uh, and I think that's a choice that we should respect. Like all choices, it has it has uh, costs and benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but you know, this idea that people are are forced, that families are forced into that situation, is just at odds with the fact that you know, twenty five percent of families aren't in that situation. Mm-hmm. So, what is your? I mean, I have my theories. I don't think they're particularly. I don't think they're particularly like clever or outside conventional wisdom, but why did the 1950s and the 1960s economically look the way they did? Why do they? Why why was wage growth so good? Why was economic growth so good? Um, and what are there any policy proposals that can recreate that? And I think it's a loaded question, but y'all you know, yeah. handle it. I mean, it was just a weird period. You know, we had people people forget we had wage and price controls in World War II and, right. and in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Um, and so, you know, when those got lifted, that created a condition for wages to accelerate. Um, it also c- compressed the wage and income distribution, so there was much less inequality. Uh, and so you had this kind of more broadly shared prosperity. Uh, people came home from the war, 
and there was a large industrial capacity, um, and that capacity turned toward creating household appliances and consumer goods, and and you know Europe was decimated, and so you know the United States didn't have trading rivals. There was a lot of surplus. There was a lot of economic surplus, which uh, you know created the conditions for a successful labor uh, movement to collectively bargain with firms, and you know yada 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 yada. It was a weird time. Yeah. Well, there's um, also I mean so the thing that's all, I agree with all of that. Um, just a couple other points you, you leave out. One is, remember, it's it's World War II, not the New Deal, that ends the Great Depression, mm-hmm. right? So you've had, since 1929, a lot of pent-up demand. Yeah. You know, a lot of husbands telling their wives, you can't have this, we can't afford that. You know, lots of people have been on bread lines. And then you finally start making reliable money and you think you got your job's going to stick stick around for a while. You're going to spend money, you know? I mean, there's a real sort of, like, pent-up demand, let the good times roll thing. Also, if you've been fighting Hitler mm-hmm. or Mussolini or the or the or or Emperor Tojo for the last three years and you come home, you want to spend some money and have a good time. So, I mean, there's this huge amount of pent-up demand, also with the, no competition from Europe because, you know, we were clever enough to blow up all their factories. Yeah. Um, yeah. My point is that that's not replicable, right? I mean, well, no, it's 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 not, and and I just and I I also don't get, you know, why why is it that we should be comparing any economic circumstance that we find ourselves in to that fifteen year period, right? You know, like that that just seems that just seems bizarre to me. Is right. that is that is that going to be the basis of comparison for what the next fifty years, the next hundred years? Right. Are we are we going to be sitting or our our successor is going to be sitting around in the year twenty seventy five saying, boy, we had a good quarter this month, but man, it was nothing like what we had in nineteen sixty seven. Well, so I have a theory about this. And, and the answer is yes. Okay, so we're both Gen Xers, which we both know is the best generation. It is really is the best generation. Um the 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 nostalgia for the 1950s, for complicated reasons I can't quite get my head around, begins really on our watch, right? It's, you know, Happy Days. Mm-hmm. Great show. Is about a period that we are now much further away from Happy Days mm-hmm. than Happy Days was from the 1950s, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And a big chunk of the 19 of the Happy Days nostalgia and the Animal House nostalgia and all of the sort of you know, spin-off things, the Laverne and Shirley's, the 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 biker rebel without a cause stuff. A lot of that stuff was actually about the first four years or five years of the nineteen sixties too. Mm. And so my theory is is that it's the damn boomers mm. who immediately were nostalgic for their childhood, most of whom were not hippies, mm-hmm. right? Most of them were much more like Greg Marmalard than they were like the Animal House guys or whatever. They certainly weren't like the Fonz. I mean, they certainly weren't like the Manson kind of hippie kind of yeah. thing, right? And they were nostalgic for their, their childhood, all this kind of stuff. And the boomer influence and the the, the, the infectiousness of the 1950s thing affects Gen X too, because while we're actually not nostalgic for the 1950s, we're nostalgic for happy days (laughs) and that kind of sort of, you know, simpler time kind of thing. And so I I think it's a big part of it is the sort of the cultural lag. I mean, at the left is nostalgic for wages and price controls and um, strong labor movements and a lot of that kind of stuff. But the whole gestalt I think has a lot to do with that 
rapid onset boomer nostalgia for the 1950s. Yeah, it's a theory. I don't. I don't know yeah. for sure. I mean, the the boomers, being the worst generation, have inflicted so much horror and pain on us. This could be another thing. That's true. Although um, the greatest generation has some stuff to be blamed for as well. Yeah. Um, um, I'm not going to. It's it's a talk about podcast bingo. I do have a whole rant about it, but a lot of the changes to our entitlement structure, to our labor policies, starting with like the GI Bill, right? They're all aimed at sucking up to that to the greatest generation, and then the boomers come in. And they amp up the entitlement before that, but the ice was broken by the greatest generation. Mm-hmm. And I am fine if you and the boomers took a flamethrower to the ice. Yes, yes, melted then, all of it, <laughs> um, and then flooded us with whiny bitchiness. But anyway, we don't need to get dwell on all that. Um, so can't get him out of the White House. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, where where were we? Um, okay, so. Policy stuff, right? So presumably we can't level all of our economic competitors, right? And I don't know, that's Trump. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, we can't rely on uh, an industrial policy that builds up the factory base. I don't know, that's the conservative nationalists. Yeah. Okay. So uh, stipulate that these things are not. We're not going to be able to recreate the conditions from 1929 to 1948. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the policy approaches that you would recommend to help us get out of all of this stuff? And there's a lot of scope for deregulating the labor market uh-huh. to allow for greater competition and 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 uh, and higher wages as a consequence of that. Uh, you know, things like occupational licensing, for example, uh, are barriers to to better wages and, and, and mobility for people. Um, other sorts of deregulatory actions are, would be very helpful, deregulating zoning laws mm-hmm. to, you know, when, when people used to move. Yeah. Um, and that actually used to be a source of great macroeconomic strength. You know, it's not just, I mean, the discussion often focuses on the individual workers. Right. Um, but the economy as a whole was helped tremendously, particularly following recessions and economic shocks by people moving from areas that weren't doing so well to areas that are doing better and a lot of those a lot of that mobility has been hindered by how high, by high housing prices and housing prices are high in many places in part because of these kind of silly zoning laws um, so there's there's a lot of scope for for deregulatory action for sure um, a lot of that though is not federal though right I mean like the zoning stuff you know is... a lot of it a lot of it isn't federal um, but the federal government can do a lot mm-hmm. and uh, you know if, if Ronald Reagan could raise the drinking age to 21 i think uh i think president trump can try and get some of these states to knock off some of this uh, occupational licensing stuff hmm i'm not sure i agree with your police work there (laughs) um uh yeah so you know let's talk about why why is america less mobile and also you you have this thing about how americans seem to be more risk averse than they used to be i mean what do you mean, and where does that come from? So I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, you don't know what you mean. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I seldom know what I mean. Um, you know, I think I think it's kind of a mystery as to why. Uh-huh. But uh, you think it's true? I think it's be- true for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think it's true that, that Americans are more risk averse, that Americans are kind of more complacent. Uh-huh. Um, you see this in statistics about entrepreneurship and about economic dynamism you know we're just we're just less dynamic and and, and, and less risk-taking as an economy than we used to be 
you know, why is that? I don't know. I mean, it's, um, uh, you know, something that, that has been studied and there really isn't a satisfactory answer. Um, that suggests to me kind of one of two things. Uh, one is that we are richer. Mm-hmm. And as you get richer, you, you know, become more comfortable and, and mm-hmm. more complacent and less risk-taking. And that that's not just true for the top 1% or the top 20%. But, you know, as the middle class, kind of broadly defined, has grown uh, wealthier over the past several decades, which they have, mm-hmm. uh, that that has uh, affected those sorts of, 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 of risk appetites. Um, another possibility is just cultural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's troubling um, because uh, advances in social welfare over the longer term really do come from uh, a culture of uh, innovation and dynamism and energy and entrepreneurship. Um, uh, that's what propels a society forward. Mm-hmm. And if we're if we're losing that, that's that's very problematic. Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, there's no silver bullet to solve these things, obviously. But as I'm not going to do my normal institutions matter shtick on here, but institutions matter. And one of the places that really understands how much institutions matter is donors trust. All right. So before we actually get into the uh, ad part of the donors trust thing, I want to apologize. We were supposed to have this ad on the podcast with Keith Whittington. It's Keith, right? I keep, for some reason, I want to call him Mark. It's weird. Um, and uh, I'm surprised we didn't get more rave reviews about that podcast in general because I thought it was, I thought that was a really interesting one and it was the kind of wonkery that a lot of people claim they crave from this podcast in the first place. And anyway, the, the um, Donors Trust ad was supposed to be in there. And one of the reasons why I'm vexed by this is that I had one of the better segues I've ever had um, to get into the Donors Trust ad. And now it's lost to history because we ended up not being able to record it in the studio at the time because we had um, some colleagues who had re- reserved the studio and um, and they were insistent that we get out right away, which is why we had that rushed ending to that episode. And um, um, so I never got a chance to read it. And then I did a did it on a portable podcast, th- a port- podcast recorder thing and the audio didn't work. And uh, Caleb Parker, our czar of podcastery, uh, deemed the audio unfit for cu- public consumption and cut it out. And um, so, you know, the, the severe sanctions have been leveled against various members of the staff. And it's, you know, um, I'm I'm hoping Nick, my research assistant, can do his job with only nine fingers. But... Um, uh, Anyway, uh, I just want to get that out there and apologize to the folks at Donors Trust because we had planned on doing it with that podcast and it didn't work out. And um, so there's that. So anyway, um, you know, I just we like Donors Trust and um, and it, I liked my segue and you know it's now in the same bin as episode 11 and you know that, that makes me sad. So anyway, but you know over the years there have been a variety of bad ideas like that of the populist rhetoric Michael lays out in his new book. That's why there's Donors Trust. It allows people like you to strategically invest your charitable dollars to fight bad ideas with good ideas. 
Donors Trust is the community foundation for those who care about free markets, limited government, and personal responsibility. A donor-advised fund at Donors Trust offers you a tool for simplifying your giving and maximizing your tax benefits. There are lots of donor-advised fund providers out there, but only Donors Trust shares your principles. The Donors Trust team will work with you to protect your charitable legacy, define your impact, and help you achieve your charitable goals, whether it's fighting populist bad ideas or giving to your local civic organization. Last year, Donors Trust facilitated more than $200 million in charitable gifts to advance liberty from donors who give away a few hundred dollars a year and others who give much more. See how Donors Trust and a donor-advised fund could help you increase the impact of your philanthropy. Remnant listeners can get a free copy of Six Reasons to Use a Donor-Advised Fund by visiting donorstrust.org slash dingo. Go there to see how a fund with Donors Trust can help you with your giving. That's donorstrust.org slash dingo. We thank Donors Trust for sponsoring today's episode of The Remnant. Okay, so uh, I'm not going to make you lose your union card for pointy-headed economist by asking you to engage in pure rank political punditry. I mean, we can do that. But uh, let's have a little rank economic punditry Mm -hmm. here. Um, How uh, going by sort of Worst case scenario being a couple million people die, people are terrified to get on planes, uh, roving bands of motorcycle hordes control the inner cities, although they have a hard time on their motorcycles because they're wearing hazmat suits, um, as the worst case scenario for coronavirus. Best case scenario is mortality rate the the number of dead stays pretty close to where it is now in the in the thousands that's sad but it is what it is in its reality um and it does turn out to be more like a bad flu bug that we managed to contain um sort of in between those two since you're not an epidemiologist like i am um where um where do you see the economy going based on the corona stuff? Like, what is the impact of it? I think it's I think it's very hard to know uh, because we are still at a very early stage of this in the United States, for sure. Also in Europe, um, and uh, the degree to which it it becomes severe obviously has a direct you know effect on those things. Um, you know, if you if you look at the last few days, we had a dramatic reduction in the value of equities in the stock market um uh, uh you know a 2008 style drop mm-hmm. you know uh, uh the the market lost you know over 10 percent of its value in in a week that's bad right that's bad it's not good it's not good uh-huh. um uh and then we saw a 1300 point rally yesterday uh-huh. in the dow we're recording this on tuesday super tuesday we're recording um, this on super tuesday that's yeah. right um uh and um uh, and this morning we saw an attempt by the group of seven finance ministers and central bankers to calm global markets uh, by issuing a statement that they would work together to try and stabilize economies and and, and to address this. Um, you know whether or not that will have a 
in effect today on Super Tuesday on on stock prices, I think is 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 an open question. Uh, the uh, central bankers did not commit to any specific actions, but they did commit to the. They made a commitment to take actions mm-hmm. when, when actions were necessary. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the Federal Reserve cut interest rates before the next regularly scheduled meeting mm-hmm. as a way to uh, surprise financial markets on the upside. Um, Explain to me. I mean, I, I get the psychology of it, mm-hmm. right? Um, but. My understanding, and I hate talking about interest rates, but my understanding is that when you cut interest rates, you make it easier to borrow, which makes businesses more likely to borrow and invest, um, for people to borrow and spend, um, and that has a sort of uh, sugar-high boosting effect on the economy, and maybe some of those investments have more lasting, sustainable benefits, yada, yada, yada. In the case of the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. right, where the whole, I mean, I, maybe it'll create people ordering more masks from Amazon. But like, how? Explain to me the economics uh, aside from the psychological part of it. How does like lowering interest rates actually combat the specific kind of problem that is the coronavirus, which is causing people not to fly? They're not going to fly because interest rates are lower, mm-hmm. right? They're not more likely to go to the mall because interest rates are lower. Yep. Um, they're not more likely to go to the factory that has been closed because of the coronavirus because they're lower. What what tangibly does that do to actually combat the coronavirus? Yeah. I'm writing my uh, Bloomberg column on this right now uh-huh. um, uh, so people can people can read that um, uh, if they're interested. It's been annoying me because you have your laptop out and you've been literally like typing it as we're doing this. I've been muting the microphone uh-huh. so that the clickety-clack doesn't destroy the audio. Uh, it, 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 does, it does not help with those things right uh-huh. so so one of the challenges of the coronavirus is that it's a supply shock um, which means that uh, it affects the supply side of the economy uh, factories shut down people don't go to work um, uh, that sort of thing and lower interest rates are not going to get people to, to go to a factory to go work at a factory that's closed that's absolutely right um, but if we get to the point where there are widespread factories shutting down, and where people aren't flying on airplanes, uh, then that will also be a, a, a massive shock to demand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's that's kind of the logic. If this turns out to be a kind of run-of-the-mill supply shock, mm-hmm. monetary policy won't do much at all. Um, uh, but then not a whole lot will be needed. Right. If it becomes a massive supply shock, then that will have second-order demand effects that monetary policy can address. Um, a second channel is um, uh, what's called a wealth effect. So if 10% of your 401k evaporates in one week, you're liable to spend a little less money. And if, for whatever reason, financial markets respond to the Fed reducing interest rates uh, by pushing the value of stock portfolios up, then that can affect consumer spending as well. Um, I also think that there's a, you know, people are freaked out about this. And um, there's a sense that nobody is in charge. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know that people are particularly comforted by the current administration uh, uh, being at the being at the wheel during a time like this, um, and so if you can get the chairman of the Fed and the president of the European Central Bank to stand up and say we are here, 
we will help support the economy. We will get uh, uh, people through this. You know, they're the adults in the room, mm-hmm. and that has a psychological effect. I think that that shouldn't be dismissed. It occurs to me that you know people talk about how Jeff Bezos is like a James Bond villain, mm-hmm, sure. all that kind of stuff. If you were Jeff Bezos, unleashing a non-lethal, but really sort of bowel stewing, got to stay at home <laughs> kind of disease uh, would be fantastic for Amazon's earnings. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, like, for a little bit at least. For a little bit, you got to <laughs> order all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, well, particularly if you have the antidote so, like, your warehouse guys <laughs> yeah. can still fulfill the orders and your yeah. drivers can. Um, I mean, the stock price for uh, Costco and Walmart and Target all went up. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so, okay, so the other thing that's sort of been in the economic punditry news of late is our friend Orrin Cass has come out with a new understanding of inflation that's yeah. that uh, has been the subject of considerable pushback. Um, mm-hmm. Can you explain what that is and um, what you think of it? Yeah, so I can do that. Um, thank you, Jonah. Uh, <laughs> Orrin uh, uh, wanted to, uh, I think, look at whether or not a kind of typical male worker mm-hmm. c- can afford what he identified as uh, some basic necessities of of family life. Um, and those necessities are the cost of health insurance, the cost of college tuition, the cost of transportation, um, uh, uh, and one more, which I can't remember. Uh-huh. Uh, and he, you know, did some arithmetic and concluded that uh, in 1985 it would take a typical male worker, you know, half the year to afford those things, and in uh, the, the the present day it would take 53 weeks and. You know there are only fifty-two weeks in the year, and so therefore it's it's, it's unaffordable. Um, and the kind of conservative nationalists, conservative populists who want to believe that uh, everything is terrible right now, particularly for families and particularly for for men, um, uh, and who and who and who are at, you know out there pushing that, who are out there pushing the the kind of social conservatives who are out there pushing the notion that. You know that women have to work if they want their family to be a middle class family, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, really seized on this um, and and use this to to support their their view of mm-hmm. these issues. Um, you know, there are there there are just some you know really kind of basic first order problems with with Oren's calculations. Um, you know, he charges a family. The full price of uh, a health insurance plan, which mm-hmm. is like twenty thousand um, dollars, but doesn't include employer contributions to those premiums in the earnings of a male worker. Mm-hmm. So he's really stacking the deck there. Um, he includes the sticker price of college uh, in the cost facing a family, but doesn't include any of the financial aid that comes from colleges and that comes from governments in, in, in the earnings. So he's really stacking the deck there. Um, uh, you know, he, he ignores the fact that the typical male worker probably doesn't have a kid going to college. I mean, most people don't go to a, to Mm -hmm. a four year college. Um, so he's stacking the deck there. 
uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, so there, there are, there are all sorts of, there are all sorts of, of very kind of basic analytical problems mm-hmm. with, with, with what, with what Oren, uh, uh, put together. Um, you know, my, my problem, and I, I did a, I did a, uh, my Bloomberg column on this, um, last week. My, my problems with this are those for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you should, you know, you should, you should, what you do should be analytically defensible if you're going to, you know, kind of enter the public debate with this sort of thing. But my problems are also, you know, just broader than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's just, it's just not the case that a typical male worker has been standing still for the last three decades. Um, uh, in terms of his wages, even after you account for the fact that college is more expensive and that healthcare is more expensive, uh, et cetera, et cetera, uh, it is still the case that a typical male worker has seen wage gains mm-hmm. even after accounting for those costs over the past thirty years. Um, if you look at household uh, income, uh, which I do in the book, uh, even after accounting for all those costs, household income is up. Considerably, you know, twenty-five percent depending on the income measure, forty-four percent depending on the income measure for the median household. Um, even after accounting for all these costs that Oren is Oren is uh, concerned about, um, if you and we talked about this earlier, if you look at at married men who have kids at home, uh, a large share of them who are in the middle class have stay-at-home wives. Mm-hmm. It's just not the case that you have to have two uh, people working in order in order to be to be in the middle class. Um, and so, you know, what I certainly find the 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 you know, kind of, you know, uh, calculations uh, that Orrin did frustrating, but what I find even more frustrating is is the kind of broader narrative out there that really seized on this um, that I think is just at odds with the with the reality. You know, one of our one of our friends uh, texted me and said, "You know, don't you think we should, you know, have a society where a, a man, you know, can be a breadwinner and 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 if he and if he wants, you know, if his wife can stay home with their kids and and they can be in the middle class." And I I wrote back and said, "We have that society now." Yeah. Um. So that's you know that's that's that. So uh, a methodological. Uh math question, right? So when you're talking about how the wages haven't stagnated and they've actually gone up a third to whatever, you know, um, that is just, I mean, I'm, this is a factual question I'm just asking. That That is just looking at the wage and compensation end, right? Where, how do you factor in also the fact that all, the sort of the substitution that we get from better technology for cheaper price, does the cheaper prices factor into that? Does that sneak in through adjusting it through inflation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The cheaper fri- the, the the cheaper fr- the cheaper prices sneaks in through the inflation adjustment. Okay, because but there's still the substitution pro- thing with with the technology, right? I mean, yeah. like uh, because we're Gen Xers, the best generation, we remember when cars first had electric windows. Yeah, right, and that was a big deal. <laughs> and there was a whole generation of parents who had to yell at kids. Because we thought it was like a toy yeah. in the back seat to magic. be able to go up and down with the electric windows. I, mean, so I cool. enjoyed cranking the. The crank the was cool. Crank, crank has its know? benefits yeah. too, um, and uh, you know, you just look at the fact, you know, you just look at the th- things like what an iPhone can do, or um, uh, you know, the 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 sort of what the original mobile phone was something like 
five thousand dollars yeah. in 1984 dollars and it had a battery that lasted 30 minutes you remember those kind of yeah they, they came in their own briefcase or like remember, remember the, my dad had one yeah gordon gecko and and wall street i remember and that was that was supposed to be like this he's on the beach and he's holding this thing that looks like there it's was, a shoe there you know the, there was the zach morris phone zach oh no zach morris from some save a bell yeah yeah yeah, he had one of those brick cell phones. Did he really? Yeah. Oh, God, I'm sorry, I don't remember that. I remember, um, I remember when the StarTac came out back in the 90s. I remember StarTac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was a that looked like it was from the future. And I know that. So some of that comes in through the inflation stuff, but it's just also just better quality things yeah. that we've got, right? And um, I remember what I used to. I mean, the amount of money that we spent on my first computers that did a tenth of what a computer does now. Um, this this idea that, that that everything was better in the past that's that part of the story always sort of gets left out right yeah um and so the where was i going to go with this I mean, um, now you can buy a computer for the cost of a nice dinner yeah you know um um so this is something i think i might even brought it up with you the last time you were on here though i i really try very hard to black out that memory um the drinking helps <laughs> um the you know, my standard complaint, which I brought up with Orncast when he was on my podcast, um, is that I'm a big Hayek guy. You know, I like Hayek. And um, and I don't mean Selma. He was great at parties. Um, tell me about it. Uh, but no, uh, so, you know, and his his use, you know, his his essay on the uses of knowledge, you know, that summarizes the knowledge problem essay and the stuff in The Fatal Conceit and all these other places, he's making an argument about the problem with economic planning. He's not making an argument against left-wing economic planning. Yeah. Though that's a focus of it because back then it was the left that was all about economic planning and yeah. the right wasn't that much. And yeah, now it's everybody. And now, now it's everybody it's... but the remnant. That's right. That's right. Thank you very much. Your check is in the mail. Um, um, you know, when I asked you earlier about what are the policy things that we could do, you basically gave a very remnanty answer, which was, which I appreciate, of deregulation, right? Of cutting these things because you're, you know, you're you're a child of unfettered capitalism and market fundamentalist guy. I got some other great ideas about spending programs too. <laughs> By the book, you'll see them in there. But um, what are the things? So, like, my problem with like the the cast approaches and the and and also like the guys at First Things is who you know, I mean, like Rusty Reno openly talks about how great the New Deal was, mm-hmm. and as somebody who's actually looked at how the New Deal worked pretty closely. Um, there were there were some good things about the New Deal, but the economic planning stuff and the early New Deal from the NRA and um, all that were disasters. The agricultural stuff were disasters. And uh, there's a strong argument that prolonged the Depression rather than shortened the Depression. But anyway, um, the, the, the conservative nationalist crowd seems to completely rejected this point about planning. And they, they you know, whether it's Holly or, or, or Cass, they seem to think because our goals are better, right? We want family cohesion as if the left, everybody on the left didn't want family cohesion, yeah. right? We want to restore a sense of meaning and belonging in people's lives as if the left didn't mm-hmm. want to do that. And because we're more realistic and we're conservatives, that our planning will work where theirs won't. Um, first of all, what do you make of that argument? And second of all, I don't want to sound, because people often accuse me of this, of saying that the government can't do anything um, except deregulate stuff. There are proactive things the government can do that 
might look a little economic planny-ish to a true libertarian, which I am not. Um, but there's a difference between sort of targeted, narrow-casted, specific remedies and this blanket philosophical approach that we can now plan the economy because conservative planners are just better than progressive planners or something like that. Yeah. I'm ranting, but, you know, go with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, in the in the book, when I, when I get to the chapter about policies, um, there's the deregulation stuff in there for sure. Uh, but there are also policies um, that are that are spending programs that work. So, you know, one program that works is paying people to work. Right. Right. Using using the, the federal government to subsidize people's labor market earnings. This reduces poverty. This pulls people out of uh, non-employment into jobs. It increases uh, uh, employment. Um, and it's something we should do if we're worried about uh, particularly men without uh, a lot of education working. We should be subsidizing their earnings much more, much more generously than, than we currently do. That is a pro that is a program that has a proven track record. This is the EITC this stuff. This is EITC stuff. Yeah, oh. yeah. A proven track record. But also it has a very clear and simple design. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, sure, there are unintended consequences. Employers capture some of that money, for example. Um, uh, but, you know, on the whole, it's 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 a relatively straightforward thing, um, and it uses market forces to help enact its goals. Uh, if you want people to earn more money, they need to have more skills. There are some new models of skill building that use uh, market forces to determine what skills workers need. Um, the uh, old way of doing it was for uh, the Department of Labor or whoever to you know design curriculum. And that ended up creating a problem because people who went through these training programs didn't have the skills that businesses actually need. How do you get market forces to write the curriculum? Basically, there are some there are some new ways of, of doing that. So there are ways to use uh, the market to give the information that's needed to help policies succeed. And I and I write about those in the book. Um, the 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 problem with a lot of the kind of planning impulse on the right is that it's designed to subvert market forces um, to, uh, uh, and uh, to achieve these outcomes in situations that are enormously complex. And we don't even have to speculate so much on this because we have a really salient example of this from our current conservative populist president, uh, President Trump, which is his trade war. The best defense for the trade war has been uh, among among the kind of conservative nationalists has been okay okay you know it increases consumer prices fine you know Wilbur Ross did the whole you know this can of soup will cost right. seven cents more um, and okay okay you know maybe there are some other you know bad effects um, but we really need to help manufacturing and this is going to help manufacturing well. It turns out that it did raise consumer prices. It turned out that it did dampen uh, U.S. exports. It turned out that it did reduce the variety of uh, goods available for consumers to purchase. Uh, it turns out it did reduce uh, equity values for affected firms. Um, but it also reduced manufacturing employment. Mm -hmm. Why did it reduce manufacturing employment? Uh, in isolation, import protection should increase manufacturing employment. But everything else didn't stay the same. Mm -hmm. 
The trade war increased the costs of intermediate goods to production, which reduced labor demand for domestic firms. Uh, the trade war was met with a retaliatory response by our trading partners, which uh, hurt U.S. manufacturing workers. And so when you add everything up, it turns out that the trade war uh, actually actually reduced manufacturing employment. It couldn't even clear the low bar of, of, of helping that industry specifically, even as it weakened the economy overall. There's a real lesson there, mm-hmm. you know, which is uh, 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 that, you know, even if uh, c- these conservative nationalists think that, you know, their aims are better, you know, it seems to me that in most cases their aims are identical. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the left has always wanted to support the manufacturing industry, for example. Um, but if they want to claim their aims are better, you know, they still have to confront the fact that there are real limits to uh, what public policy can do to affect these outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of a more traditional free market approach, which is to use the market to affect the outcomes and to find ways to kind of work, you know, within markets to, 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 to affect social outcomes, seems to me to be a much more promising uh, way to do it. It's not to say that we shouldn't have government doing anything. I mean, we, you know, we need a, we need a lot more government spending on, on a number of programs uh, to help workers and, and, and to help families. Uh, but but those programs need to be designed in a, in, a, in an intelligent way, um, and uh, uh, you know should not uh, be kind of uh, unnecessarily hostile to 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 um, the complexity of, of of the world. Um, one more bit of economic punditry, and then I'll let you go. Um, we can keep going, man. Uh, I I know it's what the people want, but you know. The way, you know, I, I got to, you know, sometimes if you let, if you let the audience mainline this stuff too much, they can overdose. Well, so you, you don't gotta, want that. You, you got to be careful. That sounds bad. Um, um, Bernie Sanders. Yeah. You know, who you, you have endorsed. That's sure. what you were telling me before we started. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, great. Uh, he, uh. I love Castro. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he had. He had a common good approach to capitalism, that Castro guy. Anyway, um, uh, one of the things I find fascinating, and I don't know if you have a strong position on this, but, um, you know, my friend Kevin Williamson likes to say that anytime you find yourself talking about how we would be better off if we just eliminated a category of people, you might want to start over. (laughs) Um, And... The way Sanders talks about billionaires, right? Sure. It's it's this fascinating thing. If you listen to it, and I'm not saying Sanders is a bigot, although he is a bigot in a certain Marxist way, right? Which is that um, you could substitute almost any other category of human being mm-hmm. for billionaire in those sentences, and it would be obvious mm-hmm. that he is, he is like, you know, he says, we don't want any support from any billionaires. We, you know... He, he said billionaires shouldn't exist. Yeah, he denounces other campaigns because they have billionaires contributing to them. You mm-hmm. know, contributing 2800 bucks, right? Yeah. You know, um, and if he had just said, you know, we don't want any Lithuanians on our campaign. <laughs> we, you know, we don't want the support of anybody from Akron, you know? <laughs> um, if, you know, so-and-so, you know, got a check 
from the Jews. You know, you just immediately you would recognize it. And there is this funny, weird thing that he just, it, they're like the kulaks, right? I mean, and um, those monk debate people, I feel bad. They wanted me to join in a debate about whether billionaires should exist, mm-hmm. right? And I, I dropped the ball on getting back to them because I had family stuff. But um, what is the case for letting billionaires, what is your case? I have my case. What is your case for why billionaires should be allowed to exist? <laughs> well, you know, basic human rights, I guess. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know. I stipulated those kinds of things, right? But like Elizabeth Warren talks as if the world would be a better place. Uh, lots of left-wing activist types talk all the time about how if we just had more enlightened confiscatory wealth taxes to take yeah. their money away, we could use that money for better things than what they're using it yeah. for. So, I mean, what, what is the what is your opposition to that? I mean, the you know, I I, I oppose it for all the usual reasons. Maybe maybe a, a, a more interesting reason uh, is the 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 entire argument against billionaires is, is predicated on this idea that billionaires you know, capture all of the uh, value they create mm-hmm. themselves or, or maybe even capture more than that, you know? So, you know, you often hear, okay, Jeff, you know, Jeff Bezos has, you know, over $100 billion, you know, but he didn't earn that. You know, the people at Amazon helped him and right. none of the people at Amazon are billion, you know, or whatever, even though a lot of them probably are. Uh, I mean, Microsoft created thousands of millionaires. Sure. You know, I remember you'd meet them in the, Pacific Northwest every now and then these people who like now ran sandwich shops because they cashed out early. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, So if you actually if if you actually look, there's a really interesting economic study by uh, by an economist who went went on to win the Nobel Prize, and he calculated that uh, that innovators uh, capture about two percent of the value they create. Um, So you know, Bezos has billions of dollars but he's created trillions and trillions of yeah. dollars of value for the rest of society you can make a compelling case that amazon is lowering the rate of consumer price inflation for the macro economy as a whole uh by which itself pretty good for one company which is pretty good for <laughs> one company but that means that everybody's wages go fur- go further that's right. that's a pay increase for every person in the country who earns right. any 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 income uh you know uh, uh so and this is all before bezos has paid any taxes mm-hmm. this is all just uh, value he's created for society because of his innovation uh, so yes it's made him very wealthy but he has contributed way more to uh, society uh, and created way more value for the rest of society than he's captured for himself uh, in his in his own bank account um, you know the whole thing the whole thing is is just ridiculous the uh, president of the United States should be rooting for more billionaires if you earned a billion dollars you've you've done, some impressive things. Mm-hmm. We should want more impressive things being done and more impressive people. Um, but we know. are getting more billionaires, right? I mean, that's part of the thing is like people talk about billionaires as if it's this. I mean, this is the, I think, absolutely brilliant thing about the 1% stuff is that by definition, there will always be a top mm-hmm. 1%. Yeah. You could, you could white, liquidate the ranks of the entire 1%. 
and they would be replaced by the ranks of the 2% who would then become the 1% yeah. because it's always going to be out of 100%, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, but That's we- the way percentages work. Yeah, no, I know. But it's like, it's so it's non-falsifiable, right? And the the thing is, is that have it, being in an economy that is, that is producing more and more billionaires is a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, Maybe even a great thing. Yeah. I mean, I, the idea of being in a country that can't produce a billionaire- um, I mean, some of it is because of our scale, right? You know, mm-hmm. we're just big, but, um, but the ability to produce billionaires means that you're producing stuff, you know, and I guess I would ha- want to take that back a little bit with Russia, right? Cause there it's, it's these oligarchs who are capturing state run enterprise profits and putting it in their pockets, right? Yeah. And, and there's a little bit, you know, maybe it's just Senator Sanders' fascination with Russia that he's just confused about the difference between our billionaires and their billionaires. Right. But, you know, Jeff Bezos was not like in favor with the Politburo when, you know, the Pacific Northwest's natural gas conglomerate right. became privatized. Right. Like he's you know, it's just it's it's ridiculous. Yeah. He created a he created a company. He created a wonderful company that's changed uh, American life um for the better uh-huh. and that all of us benefit from. And we should be saying thank you, Jeff Bezos. We should not be saying you shouldn't exist. Well, but so wouldn't let me put my anti-market fundamentalist, you know, uh, post-liberal integralist uh, hat on for a second. Um, How's that feel? It doesn't fit. Um, uh, the argument could be made that Amazon has not made things better. It may be big, be, made things better for youth market fundamentalists who only look at, you know, uh, gross domestic product and these numbers but in the world where i live where i care about real people mm-hmm. right it's destroyed they'll make the case that it's destroyed retail yeah it's destroyed downtown so though i take my hat off for two seconds you, they made the same argument about walmart the, you know the, this, yeah. is, this is an old argument but um i'm open to the idea that not everything amazon taking the hat off now uh because i just can't do it um but I am open to the idea that not everything Amazon has done has been great. Mm-hmm. I just don't know that getting back to this planning thing, that there are all sorts of things that companies have done that are part of the culture that I may not love. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that I'm smart enough or that Orncast is smart enough or that the Trump administration is smart enough to turn the dials in just such a way as to shave off all the negative aspects and just have the positive stuff. The market crea- the creative destruction is chaotic. It's confusing. It's 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 unplanable in a lot of ways. And so I don't think you have to make the case that Amazon is a pure good. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure you have to make the case that it's a net good. Mm-hmm. I just think you have to make the case that having a society where Amazons can be created and that people can have a certain amount of certainty that they're going to allow to own the fruits of their labors and profit from it and all the rest is a good, mm-hmm. right? Um, now, maybe I think I'm probably closer to you that I think Amazon is certainly a net good. Yeah. Um, um, I could use fewer delivery vans in my neighborhood. Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. So there, there, there are always good and bad things that come with it. But the idea that, like, all the things that are bad about Amazon can be fixed with the right policy in Washington just strikes me as lunacy. Like, yeah, that's my point. It's completely it's complete lunacy. And and you're right. It's not a pure good, for sure. Um, you know, if you were – if you owned a mom-and-pop store that got shut down because of Amazon, that's that's a real tragedy. Right. And that's, that's upended your life, and that's not something we should – 
dismiss or diminish. Um, uh, you know, I don't know what I don't I don't know that a situation where the government was attempting to prevent those sorts of things from happening would result in fewer people whose lives right. were, were. I think that would be a worse country. Yeah, I think it would be a worse country. Um, uh, but I think and I also think that Amazon is kind of unquestionably a net good. Yeah. Uh, when you when you look at when you look at the you know the ledger, um, you know, and again, a lot of the conversation on, I mean, I keep coming back to this point. A lot of the conversation on 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 the right, it's just disconnected from reality. I mean, uh, on you know, e-commerce, online retail is like ten percent of total retail. Right. You know, Amazon is like half of that. Um, I mean, the, you know, the the idea that there, that no one goes shopping anymore at physical stores is just completely untrue. Uh, uh, you know, it's completely untrue. Um, but you're not anticipating the time when we literally blot out the sun with the drones delivering <laughs> yeah, everything to me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, in the in the book, I talk about the the uh, kind of you know middle wage jobs, um, and uh, you know, I document the you know hollowing out of those of those of the of the of of, of employment in, the, in those jobs and the manufacturing workers and the and the production workers that have so much political salience but i also document the rise of what i call a a new middle mm-hmm. um and the whole the moral of that chapter is 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 on dynamism mm-hmm. and we talk a lot about how creative destruction destroys but creative destruction also creates right um, and that's a big part of the story that's that's left out. Um, that's true of Amazon. Amazon mm-hmm. Amazon destroyed stuff for sure, um, but it's but it's created an awful lot. And uh, you know, to your point, what's the alternative? Right. How do you stop that? Do you want to live in a country where the government is stopping that? Um, I think we'd all be worse off if that's if that's the country we lived in. Yeah, it's also like. This nostalgia for the past, you know, um, or this idea that, you know, every now and then there's some left-wing magazine I'll see on the stands at Whole Foods or whatever. It's talking about how there's, I guess there was a piece in the New Yorker recently about this, um, how we need to get to um, non-growth or post-growth economics, right? And there's a lot of global warming stuff about sustainability means not pursuing growth anymore and all that. And I always want to ask people, it's like, you know, looking back in the past, when was the moment you wanted to stop innovation? Was it right before the discovery of penicillin? Yeah. Was it right before the discovery of, uh, you know, stuffed crust pizza? I mean, there are important innovations in our lives that, and we don't know what's five years out from right yeah, now, absolutely. you know? Um, all right. I got to get you out of here. Stuffed uh, crust pizza is good. Stuffed crust pizza is great. Do and they it, still have that? I believe they do. You know, it, Elaine had the, Elaine from Seinfeld had the best take on stuffed crust pizza. Mm. She says, "Look, I'm really impressed. I'm butchering the quote, but she says, look, I'm really impressed by this. I mean, it's going to be years before they find a new place to put cheese on a pizza." <laughs> <laughs> um, what are you watching on TV on the TV thing? I'm watching uh, Picard. I am too. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm thumbs up on it. I'm thumbs up on it too. There was a. I want to dislike it, but I can't. I, I really dislike think it's it good. Too. And, and two episodes ago, mm-hmm. um, I almost turned it off. At yeah, the I patch one minute mark. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, was yeah. bad. I almost at the 15 minute mark, I almost said I'm done with this show forever. Yeah, but there was a moment in that episode. 
when Picard was talking to Seven of Nine, where they recaptured the magic of the yeah. next generation. It lasted about 10 seconds, uh-huh. um, but I'm hanging my hat on that, that they might be able to pull that off again. So, you know, Jerry Ryan, who played Seven of Nine. Yeah, is responsible for Barack Obama. Is responsible for everything, right? Yeah. So, like, because her husband, what was his name? Jack. Jack Ryan, not the guy from Tom Clancy yeah. stuff, right? Uh, he was a party animal and cheated on her or did bad things and took her to sex clubs, whatever. And the Obama people got a court, which I still think is outrageous, to unseal his divorce record so they could use it as opposition research against him. Dropped out, replaced he and 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 Jack Ryan was going to beat. This is in the Senate race. Yeah, it was yeah. going to beat Obama, who was then a state legislator, mm-hmm. um, running for Senate. Would have beaten him handily, and instead they replaced uh, Jack Ryan with Alan Keyes, yeah. who uh, was a boon to political scientists because for the first time. There's always this talk about what is the base of the GOP, like how big is it, whatever. He got 17% of the vote. These were the base of the GOP. Anyway, so that creates Obama as senator. If if Obama had not been senator, he would not be president. If he had not been president, I don't think we would have had Donald Trump. Um, And Hillary Clinton wouldn't have been secretary of state. We wouldn't have had the emails thing. Mm -hmm. Um, All because, you know... Jack Ryan took her to sex clubs. Jack Ryan took her to sex clubs, and she wasn't cool with it, right? I mean, I don't want to blame the victim here, but if if she had just been a bit more live and let live, everything would be different. But I think she didn't want the records unsealed. I think that's probably right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I actually like. I mean, I I like Jerry Ryan. I'm not trying to beat up on her, but because she's 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 easy on the eyes. Um, No, but I like Picard a lot. The French accent. eye patch thing listeners haven't seen it I don't want to ruin it all for you but that was that don't turn it off because of that I almost it, did yeah because it gets better um, and I hate holodecks and I wish they would just stop talking <laughs> yeah. about holodecks in all different ways um, but I think it's I think it's like legit good um, I'm watching the new season of Altered Carbon I don't are know, you? yeah I'm not doing that yeah it's a, it, you might like it hmm. I'm uh, watching Homeland are you watching Homeland yeah, but I'm like two behind, yeah. so you know, don't ruin it for me. Although the um, the release of Taliban prisoners, contretemps in the beginning of it, is another ripped from the headlines moment yeah. for right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, I need your advice though about how to fire a research assistant. Yeah. But I'll talk to you about that after the podcast. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Use a weapon. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, other than that, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so Michael has left the building. Um, we went longer than I intended because he's a terrible person to talk to, and I normally don't think I usually try to get out of conversations with him as quickly as possible because, you know, he's a horrible person. Um, and he hates the poor, as I said at the top of the show. So, anyway, what did you think of all that? I thought it was good. Um, I can't wait to be uh, dispatched to stay on brand and only have nine fingers. That was my fault uh, last episode, why there was no ad read. Um, yeah. But no, that's implied with most things. But go on, right, right, yeah. yeah. No, I'll I'll be back in the box soon. But um, I liked it. I like going through the book. I thought it was kind of funny. He has this part near the beginning where he talks about some of the social problems that are maybe a little bit overblown. And one of the things he talks about is the epidemic of loneliness. And it's so funny because in this kind of scholarly writing, he takes this break of a paragraph and says something like, "Um, why would it be worse if?" people stopped going to the movie theaters with their friends if it's better to just order takeout and stay at home with their spouse watching Netflix. And it was kind of this wonderful moment in this otherwise really scholarly book to be like, oh, right, we have 
like freedom of choice to be hyper introverted if we want to and we can still hang out with people and it doesn't have to be planned from above and all of this stuff and like it's a pretty simple case to make but it seems like he gets a lot of crap for it on twitter and other nonsense i thought you were going to say that he had this prescient half paragraph where he says why is it a bad thing to go to movie theaters where you can get the coronavirus <laughs> when you can just stay home and avoid it entirely That's which is you know another thing which is good right um yeah no look i, I again i was you know blowing wasn't just blowing smoke one of the things i like about this book is i mean literally the whole thing is 152 pages inclusive of two responses one by Henry Olson and one by E.J. Dion. And it is, I wasn't kidding when you could read it on a long flight. And um, having had to wade through the Piketty book, <laughs> which is got to be bigger than the f- phone book of most mid-sized cities. Although, do they have phone books anymore? Do you know the answer to this question? I actually, so I got one moving to a new apartment. There was one just sitting outside yeah. of my door. Uh, just a, just a, I think I'm stealing this from a comedian, but just a piece of the internet just printed onto cheap paper and sitting in front of my door. So you still get it. Um, phone book was a big deal when I was a kid. I mean, um, it was the most widely published book in America, right? <laughs> um, Nation of readers. Uh, and there's that great scene from The Jerk when uh, Navin Johnson, played by Steve Miller, is the new phone book, phone book is out. Maybe we can get the audio. And he's, I've been published! <laughs> um, but... Anyway, uh, no, I think, anyway, I think the book is a really good sort of corrective to a lot of the pomposity and the, the built up, um, you know, these, the, the narrative building exercise on the right and the left sometimes gets so, um, out ahead of where the facts are. And, you know, we didn't talk about it much, and I, I should have held them a little more accountable about what the American dream is. But there's this funny thing I kept thinking about, um, which is that um, the American dream, whatever, however we define it, right? You know, comfortable retirement or a place where your kids are better off than you are or whatever, all those kinds of things. It's not a, it's like the pursuit of happiness, which is the most important word in that phrase in the constitution about the pursuit of happiness is that it's pursuit, pursuit, right? It's not the achievement. It is not a guarantee of happiness. The American dream can't be, you know, something that everybody gets no matter what. It's got to be something that you work for. And anything that requires people working for it or striving for it means that some people will not succeed. Because if it's, if it's something everyone can get no matter what, then you should aim the ideal a little higher, right? And um, so the the problem then is, you know, the stuff from the left is everyone, you know, the left wants to talk about, um, you know, having a lower ceiling and a higher floor. And that way everybody will be kept between mm-hmm. being too rich, which makes you bad, or too poor, which is bad for society and all the rest. And, and I get all of that, but... Um, I, I would rather live in a country where, um, you factor in the possibility for some risk taking and some rewards for people who take risks. Now, the American dream is not something like a billionaire, right? It shouldn't be something that only a tiny fraction of people get, but it should be something that most people, if they work hard and play by the rules, have a decent shot at, um, 
or even a decent probability of getting. But the problem is, is that once that mindset says that it's something that everybody should get, it's very easy to say it's dead because all you got to do is point to one person for whom it is dead. Sure. And then you say, I see, the American dream is dead. But that's that can't be... The idea of the American dream can't be falsifiable by one anecdote or even one slice of anecdotal data. Right. It's like with how non-ideological it seems like so many people in the American electorate are like you could see people hearing about very sort of uh, pro-industry sort of cronyist policies, things like that. And you can imagine people saying, well, it's good to have people be protected. But then on the ground, it's probably, I would imagine, the case that most Americans probably want some risk and they want some ability to factor in risk for high reward, that kind of thing. Like, that seems to be the case for probably most Americans. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, look, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of a certain amount of floor, right? I mean, and I, I do think that the prevalence of homelessness is a pretty bad indictment of American society, specifically urban liberal controlled societies because that's where most of the homeless are but there's a lot of rural homelessness too and all that you know that's I, I get all that and helping the least among us even though that's not necessarily something from my um my faith tradition uh <laughs> <laughs> is still an important thing but um uh you want to live in a country that has economic churn right and that means that people are gonna i mean one of the things we didn't talk about on the billionaire stuff is yeah, we create a lot of billionaires, but we also destroy a lot of billionaires. Sure. The the number of the you know the I think it's the the Vanderbilts, you know, became the you know the original Vanderbilt was like the richest man in the world or close to it, and then um, two and a half generations later, there wasn't a millionaire left among them until Gloria Vanderbilt became an entrepreneur and made her own money. You know and that kind of churn, which says, you know, that was the problem with the Piketty book, and I get into this a lot in the, my thing for commentary about it, is that his whole theory is that the rich get rich and then stay rich and never become poor. And that was sort of the problem with this 1% thing. There's always going to be a 1%, but the people who make up the 1% aren't always going to be the same people or the same families. There are an enormous number of really rich families that become merely upper class or middle class, I mean, like, Number middle class is probably low because mm. you can hold on to your wealth, but the sort of it is not a static group of people. There are people who are millionaires for a little while in their lives and then fall back below. There are people who are billionaires who, whose kids become multimillionaires, and by three generations later, they're just sort of upper middle class and fine. It is it is not baked into the cake. There's churn and everything. Right. Anyway, we don't. This has already been a very long podcast, so we don't need to dwell on this. Um, I did have a cool experience last week, uh, a couple of cool experiences, um, and some terrible ones. But uh, I was sitting at in the window at Signature Cigars, my cigar shop, oh. on Wisconsin Avenue, where I do a lot of my best work. And this guy uh, walks by and then turns and comes into the shop, and he says, "Are you Mr. Goldberg?" And I said, <laughs> "Yes, you know, hi." And I just wanted to point something out to you and holds up his iPhone and he's playing the remnant. Oh. And, um, and he's like, I love the dispatch, love the remnant. I'm out of the remnant, blah, 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 blah. I just wanted to know what I was listening to because he was like literally listening to it as he walked by. That's so cool. And, um, um, and you know, folks, if you're ever, you know, on Upper Wisconsin Avenue in DC, stop in the, um, uh, 
Stop and Signature Cigars. They they are not paying for this advertising. I have to pay for all my cigars. But you know, if I'm not there, if you ask the guys at the cashier if I'm around, they'll at least make fun of me, which will be something of a fun experience for you. Um, and then I gave this speech in Florida last week, and I met four or five subscribers to the Dispatch and remnant listeners. And um, you know, I'm not saying that that is. You know, the plural of anecdote is not necessarily data here, but it was it was kind of cool. So there's that. Yeah, in your sea of hate mail that you do get, you do actually get a fair number of very nice comments and people who really appreciate it. I do, and I should respond to more of them. It's been a problem of late. I've just been so crazy busy. And then um, there, was a, there was a family tragedy thing, which I will talk about another time, um, which has made things even more complicated. But... Uh, um, no, I mean, the, the outpouring of support has been great um, for what we're trying to do and um, the sort of, I you know, it's funny. There's some people who are skeptical, but they're like, really hope we'll succeed. And then there are people who are skeptical and really hope we'll fail. And it's been interesting to see who falls into which camp. And uh, particularly interesting is the people who tell me to my face that they hope we succeed. And then we hear from other sources that they really hope we fail. Oh, <laughs> um, well, it's Washington and there are a lot of people like that. It's, it's sort of like Hollywood, right? Where um, there, are, there are people who are very nice face to face and then you hear about what their real positions are elsewhere. But anyway, um, anyway, so keep, the, uh, keep talking about us on Twitter. We really appreciate it. Go back and listen to that Whittington podcast if you're all interested in legal history. Yes. Um, and uh, um, we got Ross Douthat coming back soon on this. Who else do we have coming? Uh, we have David Bonson coming back. Oh, yeah, David Bonson. We can talk about uh, pre-millenarianism and post-millenarianism and how it relates to Elizabeth Warren. Right. I was going to ask you, is that do you do you intend for an economics podcast or a, or a Protestant theology podcast? Well, it's funny, and I'll make fun of Bonson when he's here about this, uh, who's a very good friend and a great guy. He kind of has a John Podoritz problem oh, in really? that yeah. John Podoritz wrote this book called uh, Hillary Clinton, Can't She Be Stopped? Yes. And, um, and she was. <laughs> and um, and uh, he wrote this book, uh, which I blurbed, and it's got great stuff in it, but it's basically the subtext of it is, can Elizabeth Warren be stopped? And it really looks like she can be. <laughs> um, and he would be much in better shape if she were the front runner right now. Or if he could somehow recall it and just do fine replace with Warren with Bernie Sanders. But anyway, it like is what it is. My favorite quote ever from John Madden uh, during one of the Super Bowls, uh, a quarterback ran a, ran a very, very long yard play, but got stopped right before the touchdown. And he said, he can't be knocked down. <laughs> and he's knocked down. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, uh, with that, uh, thanks to everybody for subscribing and, um, thanks for your support of the dispatch. And if you, if you're still on the free list and you can subscribe, that would be great. Um, but we're just glad that you're part of the team. So, uh, I'll see you next time. Not going to do it. There you go.
Happy that. This is gold. We gotta keep this. All right, all right, sorry.